If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Listeners, I have to share with you, this is the first recording of the day. You know, we batch record the podcast and it helps for so many reasons. I often say the last recording of the day is going to be the best, but I think this time, this recording with Holly Rustic on grant writing is going to be our best recording of the day. And let me tell you why I say that. We both jumped on at about 8 a.m. my time. I think it's probably about dusk her time because she's in Guam. 10 p.m. Oh, okay. 10 p.m. Oh, my gosh. 10 p.m. her time. Oh, wow. You're a trooper, Holly. And so we, we jumped on. And literally, we just had a great conversation for like 40 minutes. And then I was like, oh, my gosh, Holly, we've not recorded any of this just because we were having such a fun time together. And I think now we're going to run over. Is that okay? And so knowing that it's it's going on 11 o'clock, her time, I now get why we're having such a great time because the end of the day is always the best time to have these conversations. So listeners, it is so my pleasure to introduce you to Holly Rustic before I actually bring her on. Let me make sure you know a little bit more about her. So she is an incredible, incredible grant writer. She has secured millions of dollars in grant funding for nonprofits worldwide. She has also written a book that is called The Beginner's Guide to Grant Writing. I have read this book. It is such a useful and also accessible book for people who want to know how to do grant writing. Literally, there's exercises, there's tools, there's templates. Anyone could read this book and at the end of it, write a pretty good grant proposal. And so when I saw this book, I'm like, yeah, we really have to get Holly on our podcast. A few more things about Holly. First of all, she also has her own podcast, Grant Writing and Funding, so you can look up that podcast. Second, Her book and her work is so amazing that it is part of the curriculum at several universities, including the University of Massachusetts and the University of North Dakota. And finally, listeners, I have to share with you one of the reasons I really wanted Holly on 
is because part of her forte is working with people who've never written a grant proposal before and helping them figure out how to actually write a grant proposal. And one of the questions that I get asked most often, usually by either startup nonprofits, early career professionals, or maybe even middle or late career professionals who for the first time are having to write a grant proposal, they'll reach out and they'll say, Dolph, how do I find and get grants? And usually my response is, well, this is not a five-minute conversation. I can talk to you more about it, but you're going to need more than five minutes. So these are all the reasons I'm like, we got to have Holly on. Hey, Holly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Dolph. This is so exciting to be here. And just like you said, in the green room, we're having so much fun. (laughs) So it feels kind of like we should have just recorded that. Anyways, it was so much fun. So thank you so much, though. I'm so excited to be here on your show today. Well, thank you. And I love that you call it a green room. It makes me feel like CBS This Morning, where they always clip over to the green room. Here's who we're bringing on next. Uh, My green room does not look that good, though. Uh, Now, Holly, I understand that you started grant writing after a tsunami. I sure did. Yeah. So way back in the mid 2000s, um, you know, the big Asian tsunami. So for those of you guys who remember that, it literally shook the world the day after Christmas. So, um, you know, it was the biggest earthquake that's ever been recorded. And um, I was actually living in Kuwait. I was working, I was teaching there and um, I applied for a job right away in Indonesia. So that was uh, where it was actually the worst hit area of the tsunami. And I saw that there was a job opening to really help in community development. And mind you, this is before, like you said, this is what got me into grant writing. So I was able to get the contract. Once my teaching job ended, I was able to go down there, uh, work with a NGO, non-government organization and international one, and really start to do some work. And it was interesting though, because, um, you know, the people that had lived there, they had to move into like a tent community away from the sea because a lot of them had lived near the sea, fishermen in this area and everything like that. And they had to move back because now of all the tremors and they understood that. And there was different communities that were pushed together, right? So now all of a sudden you had these these areas and these communities who hadn't really lived together, who may have had conflict before now living in these communities. So we were there, we offered an after-school program for the children actually, because now the children of the adults too, who might not have always gotten along, right? We're now living together. So it was kind of a community-based organization where we offered art, taught English, because it was first time the country had even been open to foreigners in more than 50 years. And um, we also did sports and different things like that. So it was really cool. The issue was, here's the issue, Delph, and this might sound really, you know, you might resonate with this, the international NGO, not being nefarious or malicious at all, had come up with this would be a great idea. And everyone's like, yeah, this is a great idea. But you know who they forgot to ask? Who? The community. Of course. <laughs> yeah. So they go in and as we're like, yeah, I'm teaching sport and doing all this stuff. And then I start to, you know, I'm taking a local martial arts course because I'm also getting to know um, all the locals and wonderful people there and, and, you know, just being a part of the community. And my martial arts teacher, who's actually a woman, she came up to me and she said, you know, very Muslim area. And she said, um, you know, Holly, this is great. You guys are here. But what I really need is money for my water kiosk because it was wiped away in the tsunami and I need to make money again. And that's how I made my living. But she said, 
But, you know, those United Nation places that have all the money, I don't really, you know, I'm just learning English. I don't know what to say to them. I don't know how to ask for money. So I just kind of started and I didn't even know I was writing a grant. Delph, I just thought I'm just helping someone and I'm the liaison and I'm connecting, you know, money to mission. And that's what these people really need here is they need their jobs back, right? They need the economy to run again. They need support in getting those monies and getting the capital to, you know, set that back up. So um, once I started doing that, I was like, oh, and then I, when I went back to the States after my contract had ended, so then I went from Kuwait back to the States after that. I realized so Kuwait, Indonesia, and then the States, I took a job at, it was back in the day, 2006, a virtual grant writing firm. So all of our clients weren't based there. So that was kind of like progressive back in the mm -hmm. day, right? And um, I started actually learning that, oh, that was actually a grant that I was writing and, you know, starting to actually do the, the work of learning the technique of grant writing. But it's always come back to that as it connects money to mission. And I act like I'm always like a liaison, especially when I'm writing on behalf of other nonprofits. So yeah, that's kind of my story there. <laughs> Holly, I love that story. And part of part of what I think is almost a universal truth there is almost all of us who have written grants as part of our career or professionally mm -hmm. have fallen into it. None of us that I know of in college were like, whoa, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a grant writer. And and I know for me, I, I kind of backdoored into it as well. My, my first job out of social work school, I was a case manager. And in the interview, they said, uh, could you write some grants as well? And, you know, being a naive 20-something, uh, not really knowing what I was getting into, I'm like, sure, of course. I mean, in the same way that you said, Dolph, could you, you know, could you play a, a concert violin for us in front of a thousand people? Me having never played a violin, I probably would be like, sure, give me a few minutes and I'll figure it out. Because I was just a naive, naive person. But I do think many of us kind of backdoor into that. Um, and so I, I love that story because in part that, that's kind of what happened with you as well. You you kind of backdoored into it and you're like, oh, this is what I'm doing. And then you figured out how how to really perfect that. Yes, exactly. That's so funny that you said that. I just had lunch today with a lady who she does grants management. It's been doing at the university here for years now. And she's like, I just landed in grant writing somehow. So that's just it's funny that you just <laughs> the exact same thing I was talking about earlier today. And I will also share with you I wish, I wish I would have known about your book when I was writing my first grants back in the early 90s as a, as a case manager slash grant writer. And the reason is at the time when, I, you know, so I got the job and then I, I searched out my professor who wrote more grants than anyone else in the department, really successfully received more grants than anyone else in the department. And so I went to him and I was like, Dr. Harvey, how do I, you know, is there a book that you could recommend? What book would you recommend that's like the best book on grant writing? Because I love to read and, and I, that's a good way for me to learn. And he looks at me and he says, Dolph, there isn't a book. Just read the RFP and follow the directions. But Holly, what that meant is I kind of learned by trial and error. You know, so I would try this and I'm like, well, that didn't work. And I try that and I'm like, well, that worked. So I learned by trial and error. And, and so had your book been around, The Beginner's Guide to Grant Writing, and had Dr. Harvey known about it, it would have been great for him to be like, Dolph, you know what you need? The Beginner's Guide to Grant Writing. And here's a copy. So I, I give away a lot of books and I have a feeling yours is going to be a frequently gifted book when people come to me and say, how do I write grant proposals? I can now say, well, it's more than a five minute conversation, but let me send you a book. And when you're done reading it, I'm happy to have a conversation with you about yes. it. 
Yes, I love that. But thank you so much. I And it's true. I mean, even, you know, I was talking to Dr. Beverly Browning, and, and I don't, I'm not sure if you know her, but she wrote the grant writing for dummies, that whole thing. And, you know, and she's been doing this, you know, for a long time as well, right? Way before my time. And she's like, you know, yeah, there's just nothing out there. There was nothing out there when she started. And it was just like, wow. So thank God there's a lot more resources out there, you know, so to share about grant writing, because it can feel, you know, one of the, the main things I hear from people or some of the main things are, it's overwhelming. I don't know where to start. Um, I get stuck in areas, uh, in the budget, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, how do you read the FOAs? How do you read the RFPs? You know, how do you read those grant applications? And how, you know, how do you not chase the money, but actually apply for things that have a high probability of getting funded? That's the magic key, right? So I will share with you, you know, eventually in my career, I became an executive director and grant writing is one of the things that prepared me best to be an executive director because I had to learn budgeting and I had to learn some basic finance and I had to learn, okay, how does a program work? Like I had to learn all of these things. So grant writing is really one of the biggest, one of the biggest legs up I had after I became an executive director. But one of the things I, I want to jump back in for those new grant writers, I know a lot of uh, people who've never written a grant kind of have this fear of like, oh my gosh, I just don't think I can do this. And you tell a really good parable in your book about why people should not be afraid of grant writing. And I'm hoping you can share that parable with our audience. Yes, yes. And I, and I like this one. I, I mean, it's very simple, right? I have a lot of like, comic-y kind of cartoons in my books and I keep it, I say, hey, I'm not going to be all academic speak on you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm going to be layman's terms. Like we need to learn how to write. We, I know sometimes, you know, we just have to get past ourselves. So I use this, this story and it's really too about what a grant is because there's also so many myths and truths associated with grants. Like, oh, grants are free money. Grants, you don't have to pay them back. And while that might be true, there are strings attached, right? So in this parable, it's, you know, we talk about this girl, Charlene, and she is a teenager, right? And she's really excited about joining the soccer team. So she asks her dad, hey, her dad or mom, she says, hey, can I join the soccer team? You know, she's sophomore or whatever. And they said, okay, well, you got to keep your grades up if you're going to join the soccer team because there's going to be a lot of practice, et cetera. So she says, okay, I'm going to do that. And, you know, here's what I'm going to do. Here's my schedule, et cetera. So she actually comes up with a plan. So it's kind of like writing a grant. You come up with a plan, right? How are you going to do this? So, and then she says, but you know what I need is I need money for a soccer uniform and I need money for whatever the club fees or all of that, right? And for traveling and so forth. So they say, okay, we're going to give you this money, but keep up your grades and you have your plan now of what you told us. You're going to come home on these days and study for this time, et cetera. So you have your plan. Here's the money. So she goes out with her team the next day. She's really excited. She's on the team now. She's the youngest one. She goes out and they're at, you know, they're, they're eating at McDonald's, right? And she says, hey team, I wanna buy everybody hamburgers, <laughs> right? So she takes the money for the uniforms and she spends it on the hamburgers because she wants to be the popular one or whatever, be the friendly one. And then she's all excited. Everybody's excited that she's on their team and she just bought them dinner. Um, but the next day she goes to her parents because she still hasn't paid for that soccer uniform and she has to ask for money again. So her parents are like, what about the money that we just gave you yesterday? And she tells them, oh, I spent it on this. And they said, 
ah, that's not what you were supposed to spend it on, right? So then it comes back to say, okay, you spent it unwisely and you didn't follow the plan. So that's what can really happen with grants as well. And I know I just come back to like, it's a very basic story, but this happens a lot when we see nonprofits, they're asking for money and maybe they're just kind of like throwing something together, but they're not really committed to it. There's not really a full plan. And even if they get that money, right? And if they don't follow the plan that they came up with, they can maybe return that money, have to return that money from where though they've already spent it, right? So now it's additional monies or they just won't be reimbursed. So sometimes grants are reimbursable where you have to spend the money up front, hand in receipts, et cetera. Then you get the monies um, reimbursed for those that you spent according to your plan, according to your budget. So sometimes that can happen. So it's really important for people to understand what grants are and what they aren't as they're going into it and what they have to adhere to. And I love that you said that just like the executive director, like that grant writing has prepared you as an executive director because grant writing it's basically writing business plans that's what yes. you're doing yeah <laughs> so absolutely the other the other thing i want to reflect on and i think it's really critical and i think sometimes small nonprofits fall under this where they forget that accountability piece like oh we're gonna have to report on how we spent the money kind of like in and kind of like in your in your parable where you're like yeah you know and then she spent the 50 bucks on you know burgers for the team and she had to go back i'm like oh, i don't have the money for the uniform what am i going to do so if, if we're talking foundations in a region, most foundations talk to each other. In fact, in some cases, they formally do it where they have like a foundation roundtable. And so if you do that with one foundation, there's every possibility that all the other foundations in your region are going to know that that's what you did. And it's going to make it a lot harder. Like then you're going to have to do double duty. You're going to have to show what internal controls or what steps you're putting in place to ensure that the money is spent correctly next time. And it might become reimbursement. But for government grants, like A, it could potentially be criminal, but B, yep. um, even if it's not criminal, you can get put on a list where you're no longer eligible for government funding. And once you're on that list, it, you know, it, it's, it, it's kind of like being on the IRS's naughty list. Once you're on that yeah. list, you don't come off quickly or easily. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I have seen nonprofits get put on those types of lists, you know? So, and it's in what sometimes, like I said, it's not because they're trying to be malicious, but it is just because they're not sticking to what they're supposed to do and they don't understand what they're supposed to do. And, you know, that's the sad part is, okay, we have to understand, right? We have to understand what we're doing. We have, when we're writing grants, we have to be as realistic as possible in what we need the money for, what is achievable with that money, right? And then spend it appropriately when we have it. So, so it really is important to stick to that plan. And that's why you have to have such a good plan developed so you really can implement it and make sure it's achievable. The other thing I see, and I'd like, I'd like to mention this, um, especially because what I see a lot of nonprofits doing too, especially newer ones to grant writing, is they think it's more of like a bid. And what I mean by this is they think they can underbid somebody else. And that's really, I've been a grant reviewer as well, federal grant reviewer for years and years and years. And I see that too sometimes. And that's when I say, oh no, that's actually bad. If you try to bid way too low and, and pinch pennies off and, and pay less for certain positions and, and come way under, you know, quotations for supplies, it actually makes me go, 
that's not achievable because you're not going to be able to keep that person around long at all. Right. <laughs> for paying that much or, you know, like getting supplies, like what kind of quality is that? So to me, it's like, if, if it's not achievable and you're trying to underbid it, it just, it actually makes me deduct more points than actually give you brownie yeah. points. Yeah. And, you know, I'd, I'd mentioned one of the other common mistakes, and I'm going to talk about how I almost made this mistake. One of the other common mistakes is thinking, okay, I'm going to write a grant proposal and I'm just going to send this proposal out to every foundation in my city, region, state, whatever. And and I'll share with you, like, I, I almost made that mistake. I mentioned there was no amazing book like yours when I got started in grant writing because I got started in the Stone Ages. And, uh, and so there was just no great book. But I was fortunate also, though, to be reporting to a really experienced development director. And so in one of my weekly meetings with Joan, I, I brought in the list of foundations that I wanted us to approach. And one of them was a foundation that really only funds capital. And and by the way, we're, we're talking, you know, their smallest gift is like a quarter million dollars. And I was talking about like a fifteen or $25,000 service operation, program operation grant. And so Joan's like, Dolph, you're, you're not doing your research on these. If you send this to, I'll name the foundation, if you send this to the Woodruff Foundation, not only are you going to get a no, but it's going to hurt our organization's chances of ever getting a grant from the Woodruff Foundation because they're going to think we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And 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 that's also where I think that's such a common mistake. Is like you write one grant proposal and you're like, okay, I'm just going to change the name of the foundation to the top and send it out to 100 people and think, if I just get 10%, I'll get 10 grants. Yeah, it is not like that at all. That is like one of the worst things. And I don't know why it's such a typical thing for people to think to do. They think, oh, it's efficient. And it's like, no, the numbers won't work in your favor. It's actually, you know, if when I'm doing grant research, I might say, I'm going to find five to seven really good fit foundations or funding sources for your nonprofit. And that might sound really low. Why wouldn't you come up with a hundred, Holly? It's because a hundred aren't going to be really good fit. You know what I mean? You want to have you want your time invested well, because it does take time to write grants. You want them to be really good programs and you want to find the best fit. I always tell people too, it's like, it's not just about your, your nonprofit begging for money, right? We, we need to get out of that. We need to interview the foundations or the funding sources as well. Right. So we also need to say, this is going to be a relationship. This isn't a one time ask for money. This is going to be a relationship that we build. So who do I want to like be in bed with here? Right. Like, do I, are their values aligned with our values? You know, are the priorities of their program really aligned with what we're doing? Or are we trying to squeeze in our program and make it like this weird? fit to try to fit into their mold. That's chasing the money, right? That's mission drifting. So um, we don't want to do that. We, You really need to do, like you said, the research to find out, is this a really good fit? Does it align? Are there priorities for what they want to basically subcontract out? You know what I mean? To implement their, their vision. Um, are we that person, right? And, and to develop the relationship. So you can't just send out a cookie cutter two-page solicitation to that because every foundation is completely different and you need to align it to say, this is why we are a good fit for you and why you're a good fit for us. And you need to read their criteria of how they're going to score it, et cetera. So you really need to understand um, that very well and to know it's a nurturing relationship. How would you, you know, are you just gonna send it off, ask for money once a year? Is that a relationship? No, that's not a relationship. Get to know their board of directors actually send them 
tickets to your fundraisers where you're not asking them to be fun. You don't be, you're like, here, here's a paid ticket. Come and see what we do. Can we get in front of your board meeting for 10 minutes? So, you know, we're such a good fit. We're such fans of you following them on social media. You're commenting on their things. You want to form a relationship, right? So that's it's in a two-page letter. That's the same thing as a hundred other letters is not going to do that. Right. The other thing I think about, and, and I, I agree with you, we'd never want to chase the dollars, but I also think being really thinking creatively because parts of your programs might be very fundable, just not the whole program. And, and so an example that I'll give is right now, we're doing a strategic planning project with an animal welfare organization. There are a lot of funders out there that uh, that are really uh, a lot of foundations out there that fund animal welfare, but it's still a more limited universe than human services, workforce development, et cetera, in terms of universe of funders. But as an example, you know, as, as we were thinking through possible funding options for them, one of them is, well, you know, right now there's a, there's a vet tech shortage, which means, you know, it's hard to hire vet techs. What if as part of this plan, you know, you were to create uh, essentially an on-the-job training program for vet techs? And what if you made this available to recent high school graduates and uh, heads of households in qualified census tracts, which are low-income census tracts? Now, suddenly, you have a workforce development program that also meets a real need you have as an organization. You need vet techs. But guess what? All of your recruitment, all of your outreach, even all of your training is now can now be paid for by a foundation who might not have any interest in puppies and kittens and senior dogs and old cats, right? But is really interested in workforce development in, in low-income census tracts. I love that. That is such a good example. Yeah. And absolutely, you can be very creative, right? And it's not like trying to fit the mold, but thinking, how would what we do really connect with their vision, right? And that would be the thing. Well, they're not interested in animals, but they are interested in the upcoming job market and how they're going to fill that. So how can that, and vets are that. So that's a perfect fit. So I love that you bring that up, that creative brainstorming way as well to really think about it, but it has to connect to that, that vision, right? And then the flip side is, and this is where I think the art of grant writing really comes in, that then it's not cookie cutter. Like, like then you identify, as you say, those four or five funders who are in your region who are very interested in workforce development and you do the research and then you you craft unique fundraising proposals just for those funders and and that's where I think well, you know you're just so right on it's like yeah you know you you know you essentially identify a handful of funders that are might be a good fit for this particular proposal and then you craft a proposal just for them yes Absolutely. And I love even, I mean, we can go in the weeds on this, but looking at their 990s from the foundation, seeing other places that they funded for how much, and then going to those nonprofit websites, <laughs> checking out what they're doing. And, you know, it's, it is an art, right? It's a little bit of a research art form, but it is, it, it'll pay off. Holly, it is. And, and let me tell you a pro tip that I've learned. You probably already know this, by the way. So you can actually, uh, on ProPublica's website, and we'll link to this at our show notes. At ProPublica's website, you can actually search words in every 990. So you can do an advanced search where you can search words in every 990. And, and, and so, for example, I don't know, you know, let's say you're a Jewish community center. You know, you know, you you can pull up every 990 that has the word that has the phrase Jewish community center in there. Now you're going to get a lot of Jewish community centers that are 501c3s, um, but then you're also going to get all of the foundations that have funded any Jewish community center. 
And then you can be like, oh, okay, let me look at the national. Like literally, then you can start to drill down. I'm like you, the 990 is gold. Yes, it is. It is. It's like, it takes the time, but it's totally worth it. Because a lot of times on their websites, they may say they, they give in Georgia, the state of Georgia, and then you look at their 990s and they've never given in Georgia. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or they've made one gift and you're like, okay, we get it. A board member, you know, really loves this one organization in Georgia or whatever. I agree with you 100%. I, you see that all the time. Like, oh, we give nationally or, or, you know, we have no geographic restrictions. Then you're like, oh, no, they really only give in Durham, North Carolina. You know, 95% of the grants are Durham, North Carolina. We can leave it alone. Yeah. Yeah. Or on average, we give 25,000 per grant, but no, about 90% you get 5,000. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yes. So, yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and that's often where I think those databases sometimes are a little misleading. Cause like, okay, yeah, they give in our region. Yeah. The average grant is 25,000. And then you look and you're like, mm, no, maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. And that will save you so much time from develop, you know, starting to try to develop those relationships and do all that work. So it will really vet it out. But even if you could find a handful, a really good fit, man, that's gold, right? Because once you get into a foundation, you can be there for years. You could be there for life and you could be getting gifts bigger and bigger every year, you know, versus a federal government where, Yes, once you get your foot in the door there, it's great as well, but their program officers flip all the time. (laughs) There's a lot more change up and vetting and and different kinds of structures for awarding grants versus a foundation who has more subjectivity to it. Holly, I love this conversation and we could keep going for another half hour, but I know it's 11 after 11 o'clock at night where you are. And so I've got to ask the off the map question. And you know, Holly, this is a question that allows our listeners to get to know you a little bit more as a person. And initially, I thought I might have asked you about uh, what life in Guam is like since you live in Guam. But then you and I had such a great conversation. And right before we hit record, uh, we, uh, we talked about how late it is there and how it's Friday night. And we talked about, yeah, this would be a good time for a martini. Of course, it's, it's 9 a.m. where I am, so there's no martini beside me, and there's no martini beside you either. So off-the-map question, your martini, gin or vodka, dirty or dry? Gin, gin dirty, martini, all the way. <laughs> I love it. I feel like so like James Bondish, but I love it. <laughs> it's such a good flavor. So I'll have one every once in a while. But and you said your favorite drink then, which we were thought was very yeah, funny is, as far as martini. Yeah, yeah. Is a is a gin martini dry as the desert. Like yeah. like I what I, I I know I know most martinis now are with vodka. And on the few occasions when I forget to say gin, I mean I'll drink it because I did order a martini, but I'm like, oh my gosh, ugh, this is a vodka martini. Yeah, I'm not into that. So I was like, oh, we both like gin. We were both kind of shocked, right? I was like, oh man, you're, you're a gin martini drinker. But then we were opposite on dirty or dry. We were. So, oh, we were. Yeah. Um, and and I always, I were, I'm always like dry as the desert. Because every now and then people, a more inexperienced server who is interfacing with the bartender, I want to make a big deal, like dry as a desert. Because otherwise, like sometimes I get like a, a dirty, 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 extra dirty martini. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, so next question then, do you have a favorite gin? Oh, I really like Tanqueray. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but I don't know. There's a lot of different kinds. What about you? What's your favorite? So it used to be Hendrix. And oh, you, Hendrix. you know, my husband and I, we moved to the suburbs um, about two years ago now, 
And when we did, we got a Costco membership. And by the way, never thought I'd like living in the suburbs. Oh my gosh. I know this means I'm not a young person anymore, but we should have moved to the suburbs 10 years ago. Oh my gosh. Life is so great in the suburbs. But Costco has its own brand of liquor and it's called the Mm. Kirkland brand. And Kirkland gin, the botanicals in it are really nice. And so my favorite brand of liquor now is one you can't get at a bar, which is, you know, Kirkland gin. Wow. Well, there you go. That's good to know. And you can get like the larger bottles there. Too. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> which will last you a good long while. <laughs> well, Holly, thank you so much for coming on. And I want to make sure our listeners can reach out to you. So listeners, a few things I want you to know. First of all, Holly's URL is grantwritingandfunding.com. It's easy to remember because it's also her podcast, Grant writing and funding. So when you go to grantwritingandfunding.com, there's several things I want you to do. First of all, spend some time on our website. It is a beautiful, stress-free platform. And while you're there, check out the amazing free grant writing resources she has. She has some exercises you could do. Again, you can download these for free, some tools and some templates. While you're there, you can also uh, find out more about her podcast, her freelance grant writing, and of course, a lot of the online courses that she's now offering. Finally, listeners, if you are new to grant writing, if you are in that place where you're like, well, how am I going to write my first grant? Go to Amazon and get her book, The Beginner's Guide to Grant Writing. I promise you, you will find this to be a great investment. Holly, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Joel, for having me. This has been so much fun. Um, Yeah, so, and I just, I really appreciate your listeners out there. So yeah, great job that you're doing to support all of the nonprofits out there that are looking for funding. So wonderful. Thank you. And listeners, once again, if for any reason you did not get that down, you can go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. We will have links to the URL, links to the podcast, links to the book. I think we mentioned a couple other things that I said I would link to. I don't remember what they are, but I'll go back and listen and make sure we link to those as well. So anything that we've talked about in the show that I can find a link to, you can get at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And as we start to prepare to close out the show, I've got a couple favors to ask. The first... While you're at SuccessfulNonprofits.com, register for our email list. We don't spam you. We only typically send one, two, or three newsletters a month. Sometimes we have fun with it. Like uh, we're recording this in April. We actually did an April Fool's edition where we said we were changing the name of our brand to Successfuler Nonprofits because everyone knows Successfuler has to be better than Successful. So we do try to have a little bit of fun with it as well. Finally, if you find this episode helpful, forward it to someone, someone else who maybe is early in their own grant writing journey or their own nonprofit journey. So if you find it helpful, forward it. That, listeners, is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And I never want to actually have to go through this every single time, but the lawyers make me say it. I am not an accountant nor an attorney. This should not be a surprise. I have a degree in social work and public administration. And neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Again, should not be a surprise. This podcast is for informational purposes only. And guess what? 
should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please, for the love of all things decent, if this is what you need, don't rely on a podcast for it. Find a licensed, qualified professional in your area and get their counsel. If you're not sure what type of professional to reach out to, or if you don't know someone in your area, you can always contact me. I am happy to try to link you with someone if I know someone in your area.